I'm literally fixing the thing that tracks my cat while you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, Pete Wisdom is a right bastard in Excalibur number 114 for the one I love. Also, we see the painting and Black Air's not dead after all. Excalibur number 114 was originally published in November 1997 and the creative team is Ben Robb on writing, Pete Woods on pencils, Scott Koblish on inks, Kevin Tinsley on colors, Richard Starkings in comic craft and Kip Scholl on letters and Kelly Covers and Jason White on editing. You got the touch. You got the power. Welcome back to the re-education of Pete Wisdom, from a sad boy bastard to the kind of bastard who threatens to backhand an ex-girlfriend who reacts like <laughs> she's done it before. No inhibitor collar is strong enough to suppress oh. my feminist rage on this issue, but I will <laughs> do my best to make it subtle. I'm lying. I'm absolutely not going to do that. But anyway, who am I? <laughs> Uh, I am Dr. Anna Papard, researcher and writer of things about lots of things, but mostly sexy, gendery things in comics and pop culture. You can currently find me talking about spooky season comics over at Sequential Scholars. And in the past, I have talked a lot about Kurt Wagner in my capacity as his unofficial PR manager, but he's not in this book again. So those skills, unfortunately, continue to atrophy. But I am joined, as always, by Mav. Are you holding any grudges this week? There was this kid in third grade, Chad, in 1983. He knows. Yeah what he did <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know do i need to explain it more than that yeah no. yeah i got a grudge <laughs> um, <laughs> you know only 40 years um <laughs> hi my name is christopher maverick but you can call me mav i'm a i don't know teaching assistant professor of digital narrative interactive design at the university of pittsburgh and also oh, that and pop culture and uh, i teach classes about comics and um gender and race and class but aside from that i also and this is something i almost never mention on the show i am the area chair for eros and pornography for the popular culture association of america where we talk about you know things like porn and kink and weird the inter weird interplay between sex and gender and um this issue is prime for that actually so i'm excited mm -hmm. because i have i have thoughts necessarily great but you know <laughs> whatever i i have thoughts that like that that's relevant for uh, for once i mean it's always you know pseudo relevant because it's a sex farce comic and like that's true of me every week but but um it hasn't been very sex farcy lately and I don't know that this is sex farce, but it's at least relevant. So we'll get to it. I am looking forward to the discussion today, despite the fact that this comic may be angrier than an issue of this series has made me I, for a while. But that's a fun comic. I understand why. Great. Yeah, we'll talk about it. Yeah, I, I, I understand why. And I, you know, what what it, it is. It, like, I, I hate the it is what it is. But like, that's just that's where these issues are. We'll get to it. We'll they're going to be it. this. I know. Yep. All right. Andrew, are you tired yet on what I believe is the first week back from reading, reading week, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah. So we, we say that reading week is a lie that academics tell themselves. 
like we convince <laughs> ourselves we're going to unwind, refresh or like catch up on stuff. And no, we're just going to struggle as like we always struggle with less interaction with humans than we would normally have. <laughs> yep. So no, it went poorly. Um, but I'm <laughs> back. I do, however, have a book coming out shortly after this podcast comes out so you can see the thing that made me struggle a lot. That's fine. <laughs> October 24th, right? <laughs> 24th, yes. The Claremont run, subverting gender in the X-Men. Last time Andrew was on my other show, last time like I had him on specifically to talk about Harley Quinn and stuff, but like knowing that the book was coming out, I'm like, Andrew, is there anything you want to promote? And Andrew's like, no. And I'm like, <laughs> maybe you have a book or a podcast. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, I guess I do. <laughs> it's like, literally, I'm like, you literally have. <laughs> things that you do he's like nah nothing interesting <laughs> like, what are you doing? yeah you threw me a softball and i whiffed on it <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i think it i don't know if you're like me but it's like you spend so long working on a thing that by the time it actually comes out you're like oh no that's a thing i did two years ago but it's not i have literally submitted <laughs> a second book <laughs> I know, before I know. the this book comes out it's crazy anyway the world is very excited for this book and i know it's gonna do awesome we are absolutely honored to be joined this week by a returning guest who last joined us to discuss the truly iconic excalibur number 16 we're dropping him into a very different era this time around but i'm dying to hear his thoughts the pod is ecstatic to welcome back our friend and colleague dr keith friedlander hello keith hey thank you for bringing me back i i feel like um I feel like y'all have been on like a, a time traveling saga since I was last here. <laughs> like uh, two years have passed for me, but it's been like a decade of you going through a hundred issues of this comic book. I feel older, Keith. Wow. I feel older. I don't know if I feel wiser, but I feel older. <laughs> Mav has like Mav has a robot arm now, and Andrew's got a goatee, and you're all you're just like, what happened to you? Oh, I'm obviously a dom- dominatrix because that's what happens. Right. Uh, I was going to say eye patch. <laughs> eye patch yeah. is the other future thing. You get goatee, robot arm, eye patch. There you go. <laughs> Great. Done. Done. <laughs> All right, let me refresh our listeners about what you get up to, Keith, and then we'll catch up with you a little bit more. So Dr. Keith Friedlander is a member of the communications faculty at Olds College of Agriculture and Technology, where he is currently serving as the college's research and scholarly activity lead. He completed his doctoral work on 19th century British literature, the University of Ottawa, and his work in comic studies has been published in the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics and the Middle Spaces, as well as the fabulous, his words, anthology Supersex. His research areas include production cultures in the comics industry and representations of sexuality and gender in superhero comics. He is the former president of the Canadian Society for the Study of Comics and, relevant to today's convo, the current president, again his words, of the Peter Wisdom Haters Society. So I'm very happy for you, Keith. (laughs) Because this is going to be a great issue for you uh, to, to you. represent that interest. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited to represent the larger society. The <laughs> journal. We're launching our journal next year. It's, it's exciting. <laughs> Peer reviewed, no doubt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not hard to find peers who hate Pete Wisdom. Just like yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway, let's catch up a little bit about '90s comics because I saw you give a great presentation at this year's Canadian Society for the Study of Comics, talking a little bit about this year, although a little slightly earlier era, talking about you know themes of gender and masculinity and a bit of super sex stuff and Venom comics, and I had you sort of in my mind for this particular issue because of some of those topics, but. I thought I'd put the general question to you of, you know, we've had a lot of combos on this pod previously about what are 90s comics? What do we remember from 90s comics? Are 90s comics worth studying? And I thought I'd put all of those broad questions on your plate, Keith. You know, we often ignore this era of comics in comic studies, but should we pay? Should we be paying more attention? Absolutely. This is a fascinating period in superhero comics. I mean, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer the question with the most pretentious possible thing I could say, which is go for it. I'm going to uh, quote. <laughs> 
I'm going to quote William Blake going back to my doctoral <laughs> studies in oh. romantic literature. So in, in his, uh, you know, work, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, there's a section where William Blake is uh, firing off the, the proverbs of hell. And one of them is, you never know what is enough unless you know what is more than enough. Uh, so that is Blake's notion that you you never can really have any measurement of something until you experience the excess of it. And that's part of what the 90s is, is you have to experience the excesses of something to truly measure its depths. So the 90s, you know, for one thing, it is a time of complete excess in superhero comics, which is great unto itself. But also it's fascinating because I think anytime there is an aesthetic movement in a medium, then that is a period worth studying. And there was like a real concentrated focus aesthetic movement, one that doesn't look too great in hindsight, but that was happening in the 90s. So that is worth studying. And it was also a period where there were like, there was a dialogue happening within superhero comics, because even while that, you know, aesthetic of excess was happening in the regular and popular presses, you had like reconstructionist and revisionist versions. You had things like, you had things like Earth X, you had things mm-hmm. like Arkham Asylum, you had things like Doom Patrol, you had all these things that were looking at like the deconstructions of superheroes from the 1980s and trying to either revive them or justify them or take the deconstruction even further. So you had like a dialogue about what superheroes meant going on at the mm-hmm. time. So yeah, no, it's a fascinating period. We should all be talking about it constantly. <laughs> Your Blake quote was very apt. I really appreciated it, Keith. I love that energy. <laughs> I just what? always assumed that, you know, William Blake, famous comic scholar mm-hmm. of the 90s. Sure. He was a graphic artist. Yeah, you know, juxtaposed pictorial images, man. He was doing them. Well, what are your personal memories of comics from the 90s, Keith? Were you a comics reader at that time? Yeah, I was jumping around a lot. I was, as you know, I was reading a lot of Venom comics. I was reading a lot of, I was reading Maximum Carnage. I I jumped around a lot because I didn't have always the money or the access to a comic shop because the closest comic shop to me was 40 minutes away. But it would be like, oh, I didn't read comics for eight months. And then I bought Mm -hmm. the entire Onslaught crossover and did nothing but read (laughs) comics for four months. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't read comics again for a little while. And then I was, you know, buying, you know, X-Force nonstop for a while. So I, I jumped around, but I was definitely into superhero comics, into Mortal Kombat comics, into Transformer comics, basically whatever property or or IP I was like obsessed with at that time. I would usually in the summer get a whole bunch of those comics. Have you how have you found it as a scholar going back to some of these things from the 90s cuz I mean it's a bit different for me cuz I don't I did read comics in the 90s so I don't want to say that I didn't have that experience. I like was familiar with those styles as well from from being that age at that time, but I don't know as somebody who did get very sort of emotionally invested in some of these styles and storylines at that time, what's it like through your comic scholar lens kind of going back and reading some of these things? Do they do they feel different to you with that passage of time and with the knowledge that you're bringing to it now? Absolutely. I think they're very rich ground for analysis analysis and self-effacement because like I go through this thing where I'm obsessed with something and then once it's a decade old, I'm incredibly embarrassed by it. Uh, and then another decade passes and I realized that I was being too hard on myself and there was a lot of good stuff there and I can kind of go back to it. And that's when I realized all of the interesting things that it exposes about myself. I think I remember I have this memory of like when I was a teenager going back and watching the Transformers movie as a teenager and being like, oh, this is so corny. I can't believe that I thought Stan Bush was just like absolutely rocking it in the Transformers movie. And I was so into this as a seven-year-old. And, I- and those are fighting words. <laughs> well, that's it. That's what I realized when I was 27. And I went okay. down and I'm like, 
oh, actually, this is amazing again. Stephen uh, Bush is a genius and I will die on this hill. Yes. <laughs> and it's the same with like in the 90s. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm so into these comics. And then in my 20s, I'm like, I'm so embarrassed by these comics I used to like. And in my 30s, I'm like, these comics are fascinating. And I'm suddenly realizing a lot of things about myself due to the fact that I like them so much. And what did I actually see in them and what was actually clicking with me? So, yeah, no, I, I think that they're very valuable in, again, because it was such a interesting period in terms of like aesthetic movements, but also because it's very valuable to go back and, and really dig into what connected with you when you were a completely different person in a different period of your life. Oh yeah, that resonates with me like crazy, Keith. I do that with sort of all of my interests, dude. That's cycling through every 10 years. You know, why was I fascinated by this thing? Oh, I appreciate my fascination with this thing in a whole new way because of the distance of time and like, yeah, but it's still, yeah, a constant process of rediscovery is is so many of our pop culture interests end up being like that, especially with things that were formative for us, right? Yeah, it takes um, time in the cooker for sure. Well, I think talking about this comic is going to get into some of those reactions and theories about this era a little bit more and i think we do have a lot of stuff to talk about in this issue so maybe let's get the issue summary out of out of the way and then i'll come right back to you for some first impressions of this particular comic and <laughs> we'll see what we do with it so i know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod we definitely wreck a ship's engine to get you aboard instead of just asking the person who can fly to fly you over because we're clearly such hopeless romantics here's a plot summary excalibur number 114 opens with kitty finally properly searching for lockheed her ostensible best friend and confidant. She's startled by her other ostensible friend, Douglock, whom she subsequently lectures for startling her. But instead of finding Lockheed, Kitty proceeds to give Douglock questionable romantic advice, which sends him rushing to the airport, I mean dock, in search of rain. Meanwhile, Pete Wisdom is still all tied up and becoming steadily worse for wear at the hands of his former flame, Sari St. Hubbins. From Sari, Pete learns Black Air, who I thought we dismantled, but that's okay, wants all Excalibur dead, and she's specifically been sent to destroy him as a treat, as revenge for ostensibly destroying her life. While we learn a little about Pete and Sari's past, including the fact that his betrayal actually consisted of turning her in for an attempted assassination of Queen Elizabeth, Wisdom manages to slowly burn <laughs> away his shackles with a low-powered hot knife that goes unnoticed by the power dampener collar he's wearing. I like how the Queen Elizabeth thing was really just snuck in there. That was like a panel and I was like, wait, what just happened? <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll talk about it. Back on Mirror Island, Megan and Colossus arrive home from their vacation in Paris and help Douglock board the last boat off the island. After which Megan spends some quality time with her painting. Elsewhere, Moira McTaggart is catching up on some much-deserved rest when she is woken by an incoming email on her private server from S.H.I.E.L.D. for Kitty Pride. This pulls Kitty away from the search for Lockheed, who's apparently being held captive by an army of unseen tiny creatures. Back at the torture archive, Pete Wisdom finally breaks free and a fight ensues, which ends with Wisdom telling Sari he's willing to listen to her reasons for why she did what she did, but she's not interested, so he warns her to keep Black Air away from his friends then he walks away telling her he's sorry for what happened but not that sorry he's just so cool uh <laughs> keith coming right back to you as a promised what are you particularly interested if anything in talking about with this comic that we have in front of us today i mean there's a lot there's my burning hatred of pete wisdom and, <laughs> and the degree to which this comic kind of exemplifies or at least brings to a focus a lot of what i've disliked about his character even when i think he's been handled much better and actually been you can find areas of sympathy with him with previous writers i still didn't like him and this kind of brings all of that into focus so there's a lot to say about you know pete wisdom and the whole relationship and misogyny being displayed here i think another thing that gets me is just that i just find it really weird that all of the plot threads and storylines that have been happening in this story arc since this creative team took over the one that i was least interested in ended up being the focus and all the other ones went into like minis and, and one shots i was just like oh yeah you know <laughs> yes the high evolutionary exodus tell me more oh no that's that's in a quicksilver one shot um what about oh, oh it's a whole quicksilver series <laughs> oh it's a oh okay that's a little yeah, you've you've missed nothing <laughs> yeah what about you know I'm I'm Team Wolflock. I want to know what's happening with with Wolfbane and and uh, Douglock. But uh, oh, I team. hope you read the New Mutants um, one shot that no one remembers. 
I did not. Wait, truth or dare? <laughs> um, actually, no, it's not in that one. It's I think it's a different one. I'm not sure because I didn't. Okay. couldn't be bothered to go back not and sure look it up. But I I don't think it's actually from Truth or Dare because I don't remember him being in that, but he might be. It's uh, it's been a while. I was okay. just like genuinely interested in those plot threads, and then instead I get you know left with bargain basement John Constantine here. So I find that <laughs> just yeah. kind of appropriate. <laughs> And also the one shot of Colossus and Megan's trip to Dudley World. We're also getting that off page. And Kitty Pride joining S.H.I.E.L.D. That will also be off page in Excalibur. Yes. <laughs> so. Is this because they knew that the series was winding down and they didn't have enough time to explore these? Was this kind of like some editorial, you know? No, no these were attempts to time? make more happen. Kitty Pride, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Was, like, I don't think... I don't think this was a winding down thing. I think this was a throw everything at the wall scenario. Gotcha. And let's okay. let's see what happens because Kitty Pride, Agent of Shield, was a choice. <laughs> is, that, is that fair? It was a it was it was a thing that happened. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we've often covered tie-ins on the podcast, and I hadn't even really considered covering any of these tie-ins because there's suddenly so many of them, and I don't care about any of them. <laughs> <laughs> i want to come back to you keith for some more pete wisdom thoughts and get into the sex and gender and violence of of this comic but let me pick up first impressions from andrew and mab first andrew how are you feeling about this particular issue uh, we we talked last issue about how it was this weird anti-climax i had that happen this issue as well but not for any other reason than i'm uh, a pedant who's always going to read things in the context of claremont but like we have a really cool kitty pride horror premise taking shape and it's just completely undermined right from the get-go of like Doug Locke showing up in the tunnels and asking for relationship advice and then running away and then Lockheed being silly and all that kind of stuff. So again, there was this kind of flash of a story that I was interested to hear more about and I didn't get it. Yeah. There's just so many pages of Kitty in the tunnel and then like nothing happens. I yeah. Just and the art's like not good. They... It's repetitive. I know. I, know. I, I was weird. actually reading on my uh, Marvel Unlimited app and there was that moment where they repeated the two frames but because I was using focused look mm. I thought my app was just glitching and I was like <laughs> I've already read that panel and I ended yeah. up like flipping back and forth for a little while before I zoomed out and figured out oh no it's just the same they repeated the same panel. <laughs> oh my god that's funny. Mav, <laughs> what energy are you bringing to this comic? I mean, you said you're interested to talk about it. Sure. Well, see, a lot of people, you know, everybody remembers that, you know, he did Dare and The Touch, but people forget that Stan Bush also was on the Bloodsport <laughs> soundtrack. He did a lot of uh, tracks from that. Um, he did, and, uh, and also the movie Kickboxer. So he's got like a double Van Damme thing going on. Isn't that fascinating? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My hot take mm -hmm. is that Dare is a better <laughs> song than The Touch. See, and, I can, and we, can, we can talk about that for the next hour, and then we'll run out of time, and then we won't have to discuss anything in this issue. Oh, um, no. I don't We're going to discuss it. <laughs> Andrew's right. Like, there's nothing that, like, sticks. Everything, it's like, oh, I guess you could do this story, but you didn't. So why am I supposed to care? Like, it, it's an advertisement for four other books that came out 30 years ago now, 25 years ago. And I, I don't care about any of them. Uh, there's no, like, the, the, the Pete Wisdom story that is being, like, given to us is not actually interesting. As I pointed out last episode, we're never going to see Sari again. She's a character that does not matter, uh, who's been injected into the backstory of my least favorite member of the team in a way that could be interesting, but isn't because the person writing it doesn't know how to tell that story. So, I, I mean, what are you supposed to do with this? You, you said you want to talk about the Douglock thing. I think the Douglock story and the Kitty story trying to dovetail here could happen interestingly, but it doesn't. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> That's, that's where we're at. Yeah. That's you know what, what I find frustrating about this, though, is that, like, I think that, yeah, this is, like, the least interesting thread for me, but also that I think St. Hubbins could have been a much more interesting character than wisdom if they had gone a completely different direction with this like i'm much more interested in hearing her story and her perspective and what they're setting up here and it's just no she's just kind of like a you know a, a foil instead yeah well let's get into that a little bit more then because i i mean my first impression was gonna be like <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit cooled down about it but when i read this comic on i think friday to write up this outline so like 
a few days ago. I just like, I was the most angry reading this issue that I've been probably since those Wakanda issues. I was just like, it really brought back some strong memories in particular of that despair story that featured so many uncomfortable panels of like Rachel being choked and tortured. Like just mm, a lot of feelings about the way violence against women was handled, which I know might seem like a strange complaint since Pete is the one being tortured here. No, but well, I think we'll there's to, an we'll argument to be made that like yeah. the violence he subjects her to is very different than the violence she subjects him to and is drawn very differently. And there's a lot of gendered context that goes along with that that made me deeply uncomfortable. Um anyway, let's get into that a little bit more. I'll come back to you to to open up this difficult but hopefully productive discussion, Keith. So I mean one of the things I mean obviously we've talked about sex and gender and violence plenty of times on this podcast. It's a topic that we've all done scholarship about. But I think this is a good comic for unpacking some of those things a little bit more. I mean for some of the reasons I just said, you know, being able to talk about like how different types of violence are different how cultural context goes kind of along with violence. But the question I thought I would put to you is like, can violence be productive in this space? Like, can it do something for us critically? Can it sort of open up conversations about representation? I mean, so much of the superhero genre is violence, right? So, I mean, what do we do with that as scholars? And I know you've done a little bit of work on this too, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, thanks. I I absolutely think that, I mean, violence and gendered and sexualized violence in, in the superhero context can be productive in, you know, deconstructing or or subverting the traditional gender dynamics that we're seeing. I don't think that's what's happening here because I think for that to happen it has to be happening through a, or being depicted through a different kind of lens. And like I don't want to use this as like an excuse to talk about my my venom paper and what Please I was writing do, about Keith. there. You okay. can. But yeah, like I, I've been examining the old venom comics because one thing that really struck me when I went back and read them is that, you know, Venom always had this dynamic of being this incredibly masculine, bigger and stronger than Spider-Man, completely invulnerable to physical attacks type of, of superhero who no sells any kind of attack, except that everyone and their grandmother knows that Venom is weak to Sonic and fire attacks. And so, you know, inevitably in every episode, he gets struck by some Sonic grenade or a flamethrower or whatever. And then he is rendered this muscular, helpless, naked man who is struggling to recover. And in those moments, his gender performance, his the, the way his body is depicted becomes objectified, becomes sexualized, and that there is something titillating there. And I wouldn't necessarily make the argument that the artists and the writers in Venom were specifically going for that, but I do think they realized that there was something exciting about that. There was something enticing about that, about seeing the tables flipped on him and seeing him exposed there. And uh, that is very noticeably absent here. I think that this is just casting gendered and sexualized violence, even though, as you said, a lot of the violence is her inflicting it upon him. The way it's depicted, he's never, he's doing this James Bond thing, which is so annoying, where he never loses agency, even when he's tied up. He's in total yes, control yes. of the situation. And he's framed that way. I think, you know, this is one of those classic examples where the cover of the comic book lied to me, because the co cover of this issue is the only depiction of Peter Wisdom where he's sexualized at all, where he's vulnerable at all. Throughout the entire story, he never blinks. He, he's always, you know, in, in his suit that he never takes off. He's never out of control of the situation. And so I, I think that really goes to what you were saying about the framing of the violence. At the end, when it's him inflicting it upon her, it has this totally different connotation. And that was a decision. I think that was a decision made by the creative team to be like, you know, Peter Wisdom is caught with his guard down, but he refuses to be feminized. He refuses to be objectified. He refuses to give up his agency even for a moment because he's that cool cigarette smoking suit wearing dickhead. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. Can I do like my little bit about it? Because it dovetails so nicely with what with what you were saying, Keith. And oh, yeah. we can we can open up this conversation a little bit more as well. But, you know, in terms of like the difference in the violence, like, I mean, I went through it and I 
I was sort of noting the different ways that, and I agree with you, like the cover image is quite different than a lot of what we have in the actual comic. I think that is a sexualized image in which she's, you know, threatening him with the phallic gun and he looks, he's got an expression of concern there, which is not something that we see him expressing in the issue, in the issue art. And it's just like, so she is threatening him with a gun. She like, you know, punches him, just sort of, you know, your basic, regular, quote unquote, regular forms of, of violence. And yet the violence that he subjects her to is just often forms of humiliation, like after he gets free specifically. I mean, there's two things. There's the the threatened slap and he like mm-hmm. lights his cigarette on her on her forehead, which is a particularly humiliating Wait, does gesture. That actually, does yeah. that actually happen or are we just reading that sort of subtextually in the image? Well, because I wondered about that. Either he hit her forehead or not, but she's saying "ouch" as he's lighting the match, like with right, his finger, yeah. presumably on her forehead. So, yeah, I don't know. That's how I read it. <laughs> yeah. it I, I think like you could say that's that is explicit. That it's like yeah. he's scratching it on yeah. her forehead, not yeah. with his thumb. Yeah, but yeah, it I was the slap. Mo- yeah, sorry, go ahead, man. I just I I'm looking at it again. I'm trying to. I mean, I don't know. I thought it was like he he, he definitely flicks her head at something. There's a flick sound effect. Right. Is it the match? I. It's a humiliating funk of you know behave or I'll be back is so like there's certain I don't know if it's the if it's the match or not but the humiliation angle that you were taking is certainly there no matter what right but the one that really gets me is the slap and I just want to spend a minute like talking about why I had such an issue with it so it's partly the postures of the characters again the fact that this is a humiliating thing that he does to her but it's also just thinking about so this is the sequence where we have the four long panels she spits in his face in the second panel and then he glares at her and then the final panel on the page she threatens her with the backhanded slap which is just a classic abusive gesture like so many Mm. (laughs) like instances of this like it's like you know just conjures something in me when I see this gesture and the fact that she looks scared there and she looks scared like she's acting out a trained response to someone doing this to her and again keep in mind this is her ex-boyfriend there's an implication and like i don't mean to suggest that the story did this on purpose but there's an implication that comes out through the way this is visualized that he's done this before because she knows to react this way to the slap i mean they've been like throwing punches and kicks and like everything before but this particular gesture humiliates her in a way that you know when we talk about something like sexualized violence it's not just that it's an attack on the body it's an attack on subjecthood it's an attack on someone's agency it is a gendered form of violence that is supposed to take away your subjecthood and that's exactly what we see represented here like suddenly all of her strength is gone because of the way that he's humiliating her in a gendered way and then it like is this page turn thing where yeah he doesn't end up slapping her but we're supposed to sort of exist in that moment of tension for like a heightened prolonged amount of time because of the page turn which again is soliciting us to live in that moment in a way that's super uncomfortable and this is why this issue made me so angry it was just one of those instances in which it's playing with violent tropes in such a thoughtless way that is so I want to say harmful that's a hard word to throw around because I don't want to be like oh this comic book caused harm because that's a little extreme I understand that but I do know the way it made me feel while reading it which was just Mm -hmm. angry (laughs) angry and like frankly upset and I do read comics that have a lot of upsetting imagery all the time but this was Again, it was the most angry I'd been probably, well, since the Wakanda issues, which were angrifying in all sorts of ways, but like in terms of like gendered violence specifically, this is the angriest I've been since that image of like Rachel on all fours being choked out like a dog. This just made me, this made me feel feelings. So I had to get that off my chest and like, I don't know, I'm curious about other reactions to it because I know mine's going to be a little bit different as like, you know, a woman and everything, but I mean, I don't know. I know Matt you wanted to jump in so i don't know you've done a lot of work on sex and violence and comics yeah. so i'm sure you're gonna have fun then a lot i do and here's my problem with it and this is gonna sound weird given what you just said and it's gonna sound like i'm contradicting you and i don't mean to so i'm i'm prefacing it this way um it's forgettable and it probably shouldn't be and 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 keith you said you said something at the very beginning you said that it was a choice and i don't think it is i don't think the book is that smart 
Well, yeah, I, like, I, I mean, yeah, like, I would just, like, just to jump in quickly, like, I don't actually think the book is this sophisticated, like, thing of, like, oh, we're suggesting Pete Wisdom was physically abusive in the past, and we're using the artwork to convey that in, like, and I'm just like, I don't think they thought about it. No, I think they were I think just like, we did violence, fact, I, this is what violence looks like. Well, no, actually, I think that they're, so, I think they're trying to do the exact opposite, and just failing miserably, and I'll, show, I'll tell you why. We've talked about before how I don't think Ben Robb particularly likes Pete Wisdom. I think I think Andrew, you even said he might like Pete Wisdom less than you do. He's not interested in the character. He's just <laughs> he's just got him, right? And I think he's trying to make something happen here. And what I think he's going for is, you know, a lesser man would have slapped him, but Pete just can't bring himself oh. to that. I think, which is not better. I mean, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not, this is not. No, I, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what he's going for. And the reason I get that is because there are enough hints from earlier that I don't think Pete was abusive in their relationship. He's trying to insinuate that they had rough sex and pete was the sub he's trying to do like he's and and it and and the way it reads is and and i'm so if you're a person who's into kink allow me a little bit here because you're gonna because i'm i can hear people going no consent and and I, i understand and i'm about to address it what he's going for is he's going for she's the dominant partner he was the submissive partner it didn't work out and now Pete's standing up for himself. And even with that, Pete can't bring himself to hit her because after all this, he's going for, she's been abusing him. She was trapping him. And he's just, he's a better man than that. That's what he's going for. It doesn't work because Ben Rob doesn't understand the BDSM community. And oh, Ben yeah. Rob doesn't understand <laughs> the, he doesn't understand what he's doing. It reads like 50 shades of gray. Um, people who were fans of BDSM or people who are in the community, uh, the BDSM community, the King community hate 50 shades of gray because it is very clearly written by someone who's never so much has been spanked before much less anything else like she she has like to and she and that's not me saying that that's james saying that like she says these were my fantasies i am not part of this community i'm doing this and i have been I have often been defensive of Fifty Shades of Grey because I think that she needs that. I think that not not just she. I think there is a place for that kind of material in the world. I think that this Fifty Shades of Grey is not written for the hardcore kink fan. Fifty Shades of Grey is written for the bored housewife in middle America who's never tried any of it and wants the fantasy. Like it's not any more so than like than like cop movies are are written for actual cops they're not right like like they're it's it's a fantasy and they're doing this he's trying to write this fantasy of here's the you know here's this man that has stood up for himself but he doesn't really understand kink and he doesn't understand uh male abuse either male abuse victims i should say either and he doesn't understand female abuse victims either so what he's doing is he's playing into these tropes and then trying to play against them and it fails on every possible level. That's the problem. Yeah. It, it like like he wants it to be like, hey, I've done something progressive here, but it doesn't look progressive. It looks like he slap is about to slap her, and oh, just doesn't. I because I I don't think they're thinking it through. I think Rob and and Woods basically thought, hey, if someone's about to slap you, this is how you react. They they didn't think through the gendered aspect of it that usually the woman's on that side, so therefore it means something. Because I think they were going for the fact that well, we've reverse flipped it. To me, and here's I haven't tried to write a better comic in a while. The way to do this is <laughs> the way to do this correctly is explicitly call out that she was abusive and let him hit her. She's been torturing him him, him for two days for two issues so like i don't i'm not saying beat the crap out of her but like if someone's being torturing torturing you when he first escapes instead of shooting her gun he's well within his rights to blast her or something and then say look i get it we had a bad breakup what's the past this past whatever he's going to say i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be your victim anymore let him say that and then it reads the way that i think they want it to but this doesn't read like that this reads like 
everything that Anna just said. And well, like like reasserting gender yeah. hierarchy, power dynamics by again specifically humiliating her in a way that takes away your subjecthood. <laughs> it's just right. Like, it, oh, yeah. It and the, and the thing is, she's a throwaway villain, right? Mm -hmm. We've never seen this person before, and we're never going to see her again. So the only the only purpose she has is to t like she only exists to give us sympathy for Pete's relationship and see how he's trying to have a better one with Kitty. And it fails on that level because that char this character has no past. She has no future. She's only here to flesh out Pete. And what, what she does is she makes us not like him. And that's clearly not what they're going for. I just was curious about, I don't know, like when we have this kind of anti-hero character and I get that Pete's supposed to be unlikable and everything, but like, I don't know, there's unlikable in a useful way and there's unlikable in a way that I just have to question what it's actually doing for us. Because if the argument is supposed to be like, oh, look, Pete has grown, look, Pete is on some level, a suitable romantic partner for Kitty, because why? Because he didn't slap the lady this one time? Like, boy, that's a low bar for masculinity. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And for don't Kitty. Know. That's a low yeah. bar for Kitty. I don't think he's thought it through that much. That's exactly, that's exactly my point. Uh, you are right. This is a low bar, and it's not impressive. And I don't think it's, I don't think we're supposed to assume that he's ever hit her. I think we're supposed to assume that he that that she was the abusive one. And it just doesn't read that way. Like I'm trying because because logically the other way doesn't make sense. Like no. to say like, I mean, for there's no purpose. Nothing is served to Rob's agenda by saying, hey, you know, Pete used to be abusive. Like he's done everything he could to sort of make this character. Ah, uh, he's a lovable rogue with a heart of gold, and like, but he used to be an abused. Like, like that, that doesn't yeah, do anything for him. That's part. So of I feel it, though, like right? he must be trying to go the other way, and he's just bad at it. But that's part of it, though, right? It's this way that you make a woman behaving badly do all of this stuff to a man so that he's got an excuse to act out a misogynist fantasy because she deserves it. Yeah, right. Right. That's yeah, the that, hypothesis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Anyway, Keith, I know you wanted to jump in a second ago. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, like, I, I think it connects to what you were saying, which is, and I, I kind of like Mav's reading more than my initial one, which is, you know, if I was going to say, well, what, what is the purpose of this or what is he trying to say about this character? Or what purpose does this fill? I feel like this is kind of almost like an Wolverine vein. This is like, the dark past is like, oh, this character is a hero now because they've grown out of the dark place that they used to be in. And the way that I kind of read it, and I, again, I think I, I agree more with Mav's reading, but I read it more as like, she is trying to drag him back to a toxic place where mm -hmm. I think, you know, when I read it, I was like, they were abusive towards each other, that they were violent and, and emotionally abusive and physically abusive towards one another. And again, the, the lack of understanding about the BDSM community comes through as like, well, that's reflected in the fact that they had a kinky sex life. Um, but I also saw things like this, like signs of gaslighting with the moment where he calls her bluff and she like gets really intense and yells at him that she doesn't make idle threats. Like mm -hmm. that seemed to me like her reacting to a, a person who has a history of, of gaslighting her and putting her down and trying to make her second guess mm. herself. Um, yeah. So I saw like signs of, nutcase. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I saw signs of like equal, you know, going both ways, emotional abuse. And it's like, this is the dark place he used to be in, but now he's with Kitty and he's become a better man. Right. And he's not going to get dragged back to that dark, sexy place where, you know, <laughs> he was in a bad relationship with this woman who wanted to shoot the queen. Right. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of queen that really does it though. Cause, cause like she is the, like what she wants, what Sari wants here is she's going, Hey, you know, remember how great we were? Let's get back together and do murders together. Like that's, that's what she wants, right? Like she, like they were toxic, evil people. And then, and then he had to grow that pesky soul and now he's out of there. And like, you know, how dare you, right? Like that's what she's going for. And that's not interesting. It's, and it's problematic and it's broken. And The whole thing <laughs> boils down to this psycho ex-girlfriend trope that yeah. is like yeah. incredibly problematic and misogynist and, and dated. And that frame where she kind of reveals like, she's like, oh, it was just a minor assassination attempt and her face is half and shadows and her purple eye is like mm -hmm. glowing it's like oh that's the reveal she's crazy she wanted to shoot the queen right 
Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, like, like that his, is heavy. Such a flat I'm glad note. you mentioned. Yeah, like I'm glad you have mentioned the heavy emphasis on like her, you know, <laughs> insanity because Pete repeatedly throughout both last comic and this comic calls her crazy in different ways. Like you mm-hmm. know, nutcase, as Andrew said, is used like there's a bunch of different words that he uses to kind of put her down in that way. And even just like, oh, he thought turning her into the authorities, she would get the help she needs, and it's just like, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna go to prison and get some really great psychological counseling is what you thought okay <laughs> prison get some great psych- psychological counseling for trying to assassinate the sovereign mm-hmm. of the country <laughs> yeah you know people people take that lightly it's like oh well you know she needs help women be <laughs> regiciding <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, I like I do want to talk about a few other things in this comic, but I we haven't given you much of a chance to to weigh in on on it, Andrew. Uh, any commentary on the sex and gender and violence here before we talk about a couple of other things? Just maybe one detail that really struck me. I don't even know what to do with it. I'm, I'm very happy to defer to the rest of the panel here. But um, as, as he reaches his hand back to strike, he says, why I oughta, which is a Three Stooges term. It's very anachronistic. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also associated with sort of a, a lightheartedness. It's honey. I don't know if that's just bad writing or if he was going for something there yeah. that I'm missing. It's honeymooners. Honeymooners. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's honeymooners. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it's honeymooners. That, wow. That, that's a yeah. much worse touchstone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it just... is specifically like the like, oh, I should punch my wife for being a bitch. Yeah. yeah. L- like what's the what's the tonal connotation there though? Is bad. my question. Bad writing. Yeah. It's very bad, bad writing. <laughs> okay. That's, that's but I mean, it's oh. also very bad in terms of like all the gendered stuff we've been talking oh, about. Oh yeah, right? yeah. Sure. It's like, yes, yeah, it bad. is the like, oh you battle axe, why I oughta, right? And it's like, yeah. oh boy, it was so funny like back in the fifties and it's still just as funny now, isn't it? No, it was I mean, and this is not defending the honeymooners. No, it was funnier on the honeymooners because at least then it was in a comedic it was comedic. There was a joke. I mean, I'm, it was a problematic joke, but there was a joke. And by the way, if you go and you watch the honeymooners and I've watched a lot of them, uh, one a professor of mine wrote a book on it and she, you know, she was doing a lot of research on it. So I've gone back and watched quite a, quite a bit of this. The point of the honeymooners is that Ralph is almost always wrong. He's yeah, yeah. abusive jokingly, but like the audience knows that Alice is right. And it's a problematic to look mm-hmm. at it in, in 2023 is bad, but Ralph is wrong and the audience knows he's wrong almost always it's usually a get rich scheme of his that caused the entire problem in the first place and she like what alice does is alice steps out of her gendered role in order to save the day and then he's you know and he he gets mad so why i oughta always falls back on baby you're the greatest it's super problematic but there's more to it there and it's a comedy It's farcical. It's stupid, even in its violence. This is, she just tortured him for 18 pages. Actually, no, more. Two issues, because I forgot he was being tortured last issue. And, you know, he escaped, and now he's about to strike her, and then he uses a sitcom reference that was 40 years old then. Yeah, well, probably even more famous to people at the point that this comic would come out from like Flintstones, which right. like is just cartoon honeymooners. So like Yeah, it yeah, it yeah, it, it mm. doesn't make sense. It it is it is tonally inconsistent and I don't think it's defendable. I think it's just bad writing because it's like, oh, you know what you know what men say when they're about to hit a woman? They say why I oughta. I mean mm-hmm. eh. <laughs> you know no, I completely yeah. agree with you about how it's more complicated in the context of, of Honeymooners, but still, it just, mm-hmm. that really got me too, because it's just like, again, that's what you say when you're threatening to beat your wife. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks, like guys. He had just enough self-awareness to realize how that panel looked and thought, well, maybe if I, you know, hearken <laughs> back to... To yeah. that, it'll lighten the tone a little. Oh, Jesus, opposite, yeah. opposite effect. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it doesn't work. It's just uh, it's everything about ah uh, this. <laughs> we didn't even talk about the, the the BDSMness of it. Can we do a little bit of that before we move on to Kitty? Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. We can talk about that. It's just I said it. I said my my main thing, which is I I think from the cover that this is supposed to be sexy. This. This is Woods and Rob going, you remember the old days when Excalibur used to do horny stuff like this all the time? Let's get some of that in on this. And it does not happen because 
like when Wonder Woman was created. <laughs> um, if you oh, ever boy. get a chance to read Jill Lepore's book, uh, mm-hmm. The Secret History of Wonder Woman, she was able to get a lot of the um, notes that went back and forth between Peters and Marsden in order to um, in order to work on the character and to do all the bondage elements that were in, in Wonder Woman. And as ridiculous as it seems to a lot of people, I appreciate as a scholar the level of intricacy that Marsden like demanded in order to make the BDSM work in Wonder Woman. He was he he these lock these knots need to be perfect. <laughs> these locks need to be perfect. Everything had intention. And then when you know she's got a chain I I guess around his arm. I don't like it doesn't look tight. I feel like he can just wiggle out of it. Like there's no like he's tied up. I don't understand the inhibitor collar because it's an inhibitor collar that doesn't inhibit his abilities. He's like, oh, well, it only works if I use my abilities hard. No, that's not how they've ever worked before. <laughs> and then she's too stupid to notice the smell of burning rope and metal behind him for the entire issue. So it seems lame. It seems like someone who didn't think this through all the way. And then because I have all those questions, it doesn't make me feel like there's a... Like, other than the fact that she keeps bringing it up, she brings it up like twice, it doesn't feel kinky it uh, it feels like you've never been tied up before nor did you even bother to get a rope and you know tie your hands together just for research to see how this might feel like like none of it was thought through at all and that's before you even get to the issues of it not matching up with it they, they don't seem like a kinky couple and i'm okay with them being an abusive couple who does kink and therefore does not accurately represent the bdsm community which is why i can accept um 50 shades of gray for instance this is not that even it's just like the logic of it is not thought through at all and it's like which makes me go why did you even bother like you were trying to keep you said you were only you were given this promise on the cover that doesn't happen in the book and i don't understand why why is this even doing it other than to say hey isn't it you know pete wisdom's how is he gonna get out of this one and i go well he he's got laser hands that apparently aren't being stopped by the inhibitor collar and this lady's just got a gun so i think he's gonna be fine <laughs> you know, I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think that there's like a lot here that part of it is that it just doesn't make sense. I think they make, but I think part of it is that the, the writer and the artist don't get it and, and don't know how to kind of depict that kink to be sexy. I mean, mm-hmm. the, I think part of the sexiness of having someone in bondage is like watching them strain against the bonds. And it's like, he doesn't do that at all. There's no kind of depiction except for on that kind of cover image. And it really doesn't make sense. And another part that doesn't make sense is that like, considering the position of his hands, after he got through the rope and chain, he'd have to burn through that entire granite column to get to the inhibitor <laughs> at the back of his neck. So did he, did he just like burn a hole through that whole column? Or Because like that's the only way that would have worked. But I think he slipped out of the rope and then the chains are not tight enough. So he just leaned forward and he came out. Then she like didn't notice locked. him leaning forward. She didn't notice that he's now no longer has his arms around the column and that right. his shoulders are now behind him. Uh, because she's stupid <laughs> like like i mean that's what the that's what this is telling us like like the, none of this makes any sense and i think that she does make a couple of attempts to make it kinky like i think the only kinky lines in here are given to her but he mm-hmm. is having none he's not of into it, it anymore yeah he's not into it the line where right before he completely breaks free i think is like i don't know i read something into i'm the dr- i'm in the driver's seat you stupid git and I'm going to ride it all the way till you're nothing but a stain <laughs> on the pavement neath my spinning wheels. Yep. That, that gives me an impression of something. But like, yeah, it's <laughs> just a couple of, of attempts there that uh, have no real response in the way he talks or is depicted. There's no temptation there. Well, yeah, it's the lack of temptation, right? Because he would be more vulnerable in this situation and it would allude to something in their previous relationship if he did find something about this situation sexy. Like, that's where his vulnerability would come from. But he's not vulnerable. Like, he's not vulnerable visually. He's not vulnerable on a narrative level. It's just not... Or if he's traumatized. Yeah. If she finds it sexy mm-hmm. and he doesn't, he, 
and it, mm-hmm. if he's no i don't want this please stop please stop please stop then it becomes a rough story i mean it becomes a story about lack of consent it becomes a story about her victimizing him and he's weak and then i gosh darn it i feel sorry for pete wisdom but this doesn't give me that yeah, he's never right. he's never in any danger uh, keith said he's you know he's <laughs> thinking his way through from the very moment at the beginning she's put an inhibitor collar on him and he's just like nope i know how to beat this and it's like oh well that changes the one thing that we've been using against mutants for the last 20 years so you know yeah. oh well yeah. just to sort of speak to how far we are from that interpretation of of the story when um sorry spits on pete that was like the biggest most heroic moment for me in reading this entire comic <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty rooting for her. <laughs> I'm pretty I sure mean, that wasn't the plan. No, no, I know. I mean, again, abuse is bad. I'm not actually rooting for anybody abusive, but at the same time, I'm certainly not rooting for Pete. Anyway, <laughs> um, let's go talk about just a couple of other things. And maybe I'll get let you, Keith, choose which thing you would like to talk about most. Because we didn't really talk about the Kitty story very much, even though I don't really feel like there's a lot there. But I'm happy to talk about it if you want. And we've also got the Douglock and Rain stuff. We've got Megan and her painting. So I'll let you choose, Keith, which which other aspect of this comic that we haven't had a chance to talk about are you most eager to talk about? I mean, I think that I don't know how all of this ends up and I don't know a lot about Rain's backstory. Like I never really read New Mutants. So I, I, I don't <gasps> so really good. have the context mm-hmm. there. But like reading through it this- It would just piss you off. Uh, if you knew it would just piss you off but go ahead <laughs> I, was like, I was engaged by rain and and doug locks you know fledgling mm-hmm. romance and the feelings there and there was something kind of like nice and innocent but also like i don't know it's just like these two meta human characters who are kind of like re getting to know each other like that had me on the hook a lot more than Megan and Colossus, which did not do anything for me. And so, but again, it it kind of like is, you're right that its only function in this comic is to interrupt what was, you know, going on with Kitty, which was also more interesting than the the main storyline. So I don't know if there's a lot to dig into here. I kind of like that Kitty gave him such good advice, but it was kind of also a little hard to believe that she absolutely figured out everything that was going on based on what he said and was just like, it was a bit convenient. No, it's not because but... she doesn't. No, he he literally knows three women. <laughs> that's that's why. Yeah, one of them's no, her. That's fair. One of them's... Oh, no, I'm sorry, four. She, he knows Moira, Megan, herself, and Rain. So you know she had a 25 percent shot at it at it just from the beginning. And then like if she's paid attention for two seconds, there's only one of those three people he hangs around. So you know it wasn't that hard. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd say those beats were working for him, but but I don't have anything in depth to say about them because it was like glanced over pretty quickly yeah i i thought that was really funny too it's like who could it be and i'm like are you joking (laughs) oh maybe he's got a crush on moira it's like okay (laughs) i mean 50 50 shot right you know maybe (laughs) because he doesn't hang out with megan he hangs out with moira and rain so yeah, you know. <laughs> it's a fifty-fifty shot. Uh, anyway, yeah. Well, let's go to some final thoughts then, and we can each talk about something else from this issue that we didn't get a chance. Uh, I'll come to you first, Andrew. What would you like to circle back to? We have somebody has to talk about the painting because it doesn't have to be your thing. I'll talk about it if no one else does. Yeah, I think the one I wanted to, to, to sort of end on a positive note, I'm starting to enjoy some of Rab's rambling narration. We, we talked about it a little bit um, last time. I, I think my problem was at first kind of approaching it as like it was trying to do the Claremont thing of establishing tension and um, creating um, these glimpses of backstories, uh, what Jenkins calls affinity spaces. Um that's not what he's accomplishing though to me i i I found myself appreciating it on this this run through or this issue i should say by approaching it like stan lee do you know what i mean just the idea of this rambling kind of buoyancy that creates an aesthetic even if the words are kind of empty and not really doing anything um and I, i was really enjoying that um at least at the start of this issue i thought there was some good stuff going on there i think he was rambling productively uh, and i enjoyed that damning with rambling productively yeah it does have that quality i'm just looking i'm just looking at it 
Kitty Pride is no stranger to commitment, a member of the X-Men's extended family and a founder of their, yeah, this is a face front, true believers. Yeah, It, it yeah, really yeah. does have that vibe, you know? I liked the line, like, right after that. She is entrusted with responsibilities. Most kids her age won't know till they have their own families, if ever. And that, like, I don't mean to undercut what you just said, but it's like, he does this, like, subject verb thing that doesn't make sense a lot of the times, or I'm just like, wait, yeah. Yeah, most right. Most kids won't know until the kids have families. So is it kids having kids? Like, I don't, what are we doing here? Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> I got hung up on that line when I was reading. It's like that line that we talked about before, like the premier research station on Muir Island. And it's like, oh, <laughs> compared to all the other research stations on Muir Island. And I did there notice he, two fi- buildings he, on the island. <laughs> he fixed that one in the previous issue. I took note of it because he said like the premier research research institute in the world and i was like sure better better anyway i'm sorry i'm sorry i feel bad to rag on someone's i, I tried like to end positive oh i know i just I, I i just i went literature professor with it i i couldn't help myself um mav anything you would like to circle back to yeah uh, i'm i'm i should have gone first because mine's not positive this does <laughs> Sorry. One of my my least favorite things, and it's come up before, but, you know, Andrew will be happy to know that it's not Megan this time. Doug Lock forgets that he can fly. Yeah, <laughs> has can, that we've seen him fly. Yeah. yeah, 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 he can fly. Um, I mean, he's he, <laughs> he, he can transform into stuff. He is a cybernetic, you know, he is a, not a cybernetic, he's a phalanx. He is a techno-organic cre- creature who has the warlock power. We know the warlock power. You know, he uses it earlier in the in in the um thing where he you know hacks a flashlight. So you know he could have just turned into giving himself rocket boots and he could fly onto the boat or you know to America. Um, <laughs> like I don't understand because he's running off to this boat to get on a plane. He's got no luggage. I guess he maybe he has his Im- image inducer. I don't know. But like you can fly, dude. Why don't you fly? And, and the reason he doesn't fly is because we want to do this um this little cute scene where the where the captain apparently is used to Colossus pulling his boat back. And he's like, <laughs> oh, let me guess, it's a metal thing. Um, and it's just like, uh, so this happens a lot. Colossus frequently pulls the boat back. Um, and then that was my like, favorite panel of the comics, right? And, <laughs> and, which is followed by the fact that yeah, once this happens, we, I mean, in this in this same scene where Doug's going, Doug's going to America, we learn that after their failed journey with the high evolutionary and whatever happens in the colossus one shot because megan is carrying her dragon they still went to the amusement park had some fun now they're on their way back so they've been gone let's say a week or two two weeks kitty says she hasn't seen the dragon in a couple of weeks so they've been gone at least a week and they they didn't call and say hey um you know somebody blew up our plane you guys might want to look into that um be on the lookout you know because someone's trying to kill us now they're like hey let's go ride some roller coasters everyone in this book is stupid that's my takeaway everyone's an idiot despite the fact that they now have email they communicate even worse than they used to it's it's baffling i mean for the record my favorite panel in the issue is moira's excellent how your email finds me uh panel like waking up with the glasses all askew <laughs> alas she prays and sleeps in vain you've got mail which is great i mean <laughs> i mean i did want to ask is it better or worse that we get to see the painting we complained about not seeing it before i kind of feel like it's worse yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the reason we talked about it on that episode, the the reason of not showing the painting is because, you know, it, it's it's the McLeod thing, right? Like you if you say he's got done this great, amazing piece of abstract art full of lots of passion, then there's nothing you can do that's going to live up to it in my dream. It's why you don't show things like that. You just let me fill in the blanks. And not only does this not live up to my dreams, this is just a portrait. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. it it's well, a portrait. I mean- and Colossus apparently paints kind of like, you know, woods. Yeah, well... <laughs> it's like, oh, it's fine. I mean, I, I do feel like there was some... Because, like, I remember when we were talking about it with Adam, and he's like, well, let's assume, like, it looks like a decooding. And I was like, well, I could see how maybe that was the guidance. But, I mean, it's much less abstract than a decooding. So, I don't, I don't know. Anyway. It's just, it looks like Pete Woods drew Megan. And, yeah. And yeah. Pete Rasputin apparently paints like that. It's like, fine, I guess with okay. like a broom though like yeah. oh my God. 
this is like their attempt at impressionist art that's just yeah. like you know not even halfway there yeah it's odd anyway um i wanted to shout out the hard-boiled henry t-shirt that doug Locke is wearing i feel that the listeners would be disappointed if we didn't <laughs> shout out that and i'm coming to you with final final thoughts keith anything from this comic book that you would like a chance to talk about in closing that we haven't had a chance yet i just have a few smart alec remarks to end on go for um, it <laughs> which is that someone needs to tell brian braddock that he is knuff um because it is clear to me <laughs> that excalibur was like a really inspirational text for the barbie movie that came out this summer <laughs> uh and in addition to calling Peter Wisdom a bargain basement John Constantine, I had also planned to call him Jenny Sparks without the charisma and Spider Jerusalem's annoying British nephew. Uh, but I didn't get to work it in, so I'm just going to drop that. To it. <laughs> Love it. But no, I, I we really talked about everything I wanted to talk about. So. He really, I I, he, he just is Jenny Sparks. You're right. And that was, he, he's like the prototype and that was the... The better version. That's what Ellis did. He was like, oh, I can let me let me try again. <laughs> Staying. There's a meeting of the round table. No, I can't. things up there other than to say Keith thank you ever so much for making your epic return um, I've been trying to talk you into coming back for a while but as unpleasant as I found this issue the conversation was delightful as always uh, before we go though we need to remind our lovely listeners of the places they can find you so if you would like folks to find you online whereabouts should they look out for you and hype your work what past present future projects should people be looking out for yeah absolutely thanks thank you for having me back it's really a great pleasure chatting with y'all and it's just really fun and i love being here uh but yeah people can find me on blue sky because i got the hell out of twitter uh <laughs> you can find me at blue sky at fried keith um f-r-i-e-d keith uh i'm not on there very much but i'm trying to i'm planning to use it more and um yeah uh old writings of mine uh you know my chapter in, in super sex is my favorite thing that I've written, if people want to read something a little easier to find, you can just Google um, uh, toxic Thanos fandom and my article on Thanos and genocide and uh, the middle spaces will probably come up. So that's that's a good read. And uh, I wrote an article about or a chapter about editorial, the editorial culture and conflict between editorial and creative at Vertigo that should be coming out in a book sometime in the next year or two. So I'm really looking forward to that being out. But that's in the future. I'm very much looking forward to that piece, Keith, as I am always looking forward to whatever you write. Because I've known about that one for a while, so I'm particularly looking forward to it. But um, but yeah, we'll link some of that stuff in our show notes. And just, yeah, thanks so, so, so much again. Next, Moira goes into lockdown to lock down the secrets of the legacy virus in Excalibur number 115, Missionaries, guest starring one Sean Cassidy, aka Banshee, then of Generation X. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, or review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we did for many of our earlier episodes. You can find those via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras and via twitter slash blue sky at gosh golly wow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you mav and andrew for helping fan the fires of my feminist rage thank you keith for feeling all the feelings with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for a truly epic theme song play us out I know it's a